And God is calling you to this. God is inviting you into his story. God is offering a hand and saying, let's partner together and you can have a part in the greatest story ever told. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. Well, good morning. All right, that was way better than the 8.30. Thank you. (laughs) Make a guy feel real lonely up here. Well, we are glad that you have joined us in the house of the Lord this morning. We're excited to be here at First Presbyterian Church as we move into this new phase of life and ministry here. We feel that God is calling us to a new place. And personally, I'm excited. And I hope you guys feel that excitement. I hope you feel the Holy Spirit moving in the midst of this congregation because God is doing incredible things here. And so for the last two weeks, Richard has been walking us through a series on the book of Philippians as we've kind of unrolled the strategic plan. So we're going to be continuing in that today. If you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 1. For the Pew Bible, that is page 1826. We'll start in verse 22. It says this. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. May God bless the reading of his word. Last Thursday, my wife, my 16-month-old daughter, and I loaded up the truck. We hopped onto 385, down to 26, got onto 26, and then eventually met up with 95, and 256 miles, or when you're traveling with a 16-month-old, 80 reprises of Wheels on the Bus later, we found ourselves in Savannah, Georgia. The purpose of our trip was for a friend's wedding, but also because my in-laws live there, and so it was well worth the drive, because upon our arrival, my wife's, grand- my wife's family went into grandparent mode, and we were spoiled. I'm talking spoiled. The weather was perfect. We got to lounge around by a pool all day with friends and family. We got to live off my father-in-law's credit card. (laughs) And most importantly, and you with young children will get this, we got free childcare. My wife and I slept in for the first time in a year and a half. Mm, Praise Jesus. (laughs) It's incredible. It's incredible. 
And really, um, we lived life well that weekend. We made great memories with friends. We danced the night away at a wedding. I don't know if you're okay with that or not, but we did. Um, We just had a good time in Savannah. And it was one of those moments where it was so blissful, it was like this little glimpse of paradise that if you could, you would just hit the pause button. That if you had the ability, you would stop time and live in that environment for the rest of your days. It was, it was incredible. It was incredible. Monday morning, we were still in Savannah. The vacation wasn't quite up yet, but I woke up early. I wake up a little bit earlier than my wife and daughter, and all of a sudden, this, this feeling um, was weighing on me heavily, and for you type A personalities in the room, you'll get this. Um, there was this generalized anxiety as I began to, in my mind, panic and begin to jot down things that I had to do when I returned home. Anybody else in the room? Okay. And I began to feel this sense of anxiety. I have to get home. There's stuff to do. I nudged my wife. I said, get up. We got to go. There's a light bulb that's burnt out in the bathroom. The trash has to be taken out. The lawn is overgrown at this point. It looks like the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And most importantly, I have to preach on Sunday. We got to get home. And in my soul... I began to experience this tension, this kind of divide, because everything in me wanted to stay in Savannah and just be there. And yet this other side of me felt this pull that I need need to get home, I have stuff to do. There's stuff that I'm responsible for that if I'm not home, it's not going to happen. And chances are at some level you felt that as well. You've either been on vacation or you were on a honeymoon or a cruise and you were in the mountains and you just, you didn't cruise through the mountains, that's impossible, Um, but either of those and you wanted to just stay in that moment forever. And yet you knew that back home there are people who depend on you, there's things that have to happen, there's mouths to feed, there's bills to pay, and you felt a tension In our text this morning, the Apostle Paul is feeling this tension. He's feeling a divide. And he really deals with two options here, two sides of the issue. Let me read them again. Verse 22. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. You see, the Apostle Paul, as we talked about, is writing from a Roman jail cell to the church at Philippi. This is a church that he founded in Acts chapter 15 and 16. And he's dealing with two options, saying either I can go home to be with the Lord, which is option one. Option one is to depart and be in the presence of Christ himself, in his fullness, to be face-to-face with the risen Savior. It's option one. Isn't it interesting just how comfortable the Apostle Paul talks about his own suffering and death throughout the Scriptures? It's a little interesting, isn't it? I mean, the Apostle Paul here is referencing his own death, and he says, it is by far better that this should happen so that I can go home and be with Christ. He seems oddly comfortable with dying. It's almost as if he stands so firmly in the truth that our risen Savior has conquered death, that to him death is just a passage into his presence. 
You see, the Apostle Paul valued Christ so much. In fact, he valued him in such an unsurpassable way. He valued him more than money. He valued him more than comfort. He valued him more than health. He valued him more than even this life. That Paul's grip on this life was pretty loose. And here's the thing that happens when Paul's treasure is Christ, when his treasure is not how much he's accumulated in a 401k or a Roth IRA, his treasure and his joy are not contingent upon the ebbs and flow of the Tao, but his treasure is in heaven. And here's what happens to the Apostle Paul. He is radically freed for a life of ministry, isn't he? He is radically free to live a life focused on, on God-glorifying impact for others. Yeah. In fact, the Apostle Paul says some pretty radical things because what kind of threat can you hold against a man that walks in this kind of freedom? You, You can't. Hey, Paul, you need to stop preaching the gospel or we're going to beat you. What does Paul say in response to that? I do not count these present sufferings as worthy to be compared to the eternal glory that they are achieving. Okay, that's radical. We're going to seize your assets and foreclose on your home. We're going to take all your stuff. I count all things as loss for the sake of knowing him. Paul, we're going to put you in prison if you don't stop preaching. Well, give me a Bible because we're going to have revival. We're just going to kill you. Okay, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is radical because Paul understood that when you value Christ... And him, above all other things, you walk in a freedom that no one can take from you. The freedom of impact. A freedom of a life lived on fire for the gospel. Here's the thing, guys. Paul understood that to value Christ would free us. It would loosen our grip on the things of this world. And that gives way to the second option. The next thing he says. Let's look. 22. If I am to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Option two, Paul is saying, I will prolong my life here. I am willing to forego going home and being with Christ. Why? So that you may benefit. You see, the Apostle Paul had this idea in his mind that as long as he was living, others were benefiting. That as long as he was living, he doesn't say, I'm going to go on living so I can retire and you guys can just bring in a young pastor who has vitality and vibrancy and is good at preaching and he'll he'll whip you into shape. No, the Apostle Paul says, if I go on, it will be for the purpose of shepherding you. The Apostle Paul understood life as a constant mission field and he wanted to go on living so that he could engage, equip, and impact people for the life-transforming gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul was leaving a legacy of selfless impact, was he not? Impact. You know, we, will, we are rolling out the strategic vision to you guys. And one of the main areas that we are going to focus on is a life of impact. And when we say impact, what we mean is we as a church want to equip you, 
to build relationships, to serve, to engage the people in your neighborhoods, in your city, in your hobbies with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to be Christians on mission. The Apostle Paul is telling us that our lives are a mission field. Acts 17, 26 tells us that God has determined the times and places in which you will inhabit in order to make an impact for the gospel. You know what that means? It means that ministry starts right where you are. That as you go to your jobs, as you go to the soccer field to drop your kids off at practice, the Starbucks that you go to every morning and spend $15 at. That's crazy. That right there, you can make a difference that will have eternal impact. You know what else that's saying? God chose you. God chose you to be where you are, so, so the neighborhood you live in, the family that you're a part of, the job that you find yourself in, the hobbies that you have, the social circles that you run in, the gym that you go to, the grocery store that you shop at, God has placed you strategically there at this time, 2016, so that you can make an impact for the gospel. He has. And God is calling you to this. God is inviting you into his story. God is offering a hand and saying, let's partner together and you can have a part in the greatest story ever told. Listen, deep within us, we all want to be a part of something bigger than us, right? That's why guys love movies like Braveheart and 13 Hours because we, we think, oh, if we were there, things would change. It'd be different if I was there. We all want to be a part of something bigger than us. God is inviting you into it. This is our opportunity. This is our run at it. That when you go to lunch later today, today, you can have an impact. You can change someone's eternity. First Pres, this is the type of people that we want to be. This is the type of people that God is calling us to. And I know what you're saying in the back of your mind. I know that voice of doubt is coming in and saying, well, come on, Charlie. You're talking about Paul. This is the Apostle Paul. He's an apostle, one. He saw Jesus Christ. He's incredibly intellectual, just brilliant man, eloquent. I mean, wordsmith. He's, he's brilliant. I, I'm not like him. Of course, God can use him for impact, but not me. Do you know me? I'm, I'm not good at speaking. I don't have those kind of gifts or abilities. And my sin, man, God can't use me. You know, all throughout the scripture, it seems that God uses the most unlikely of candidates to make huge impact. I'll give you two examples. Um, in the New Testament, God calls this little teenage girl named Mary. She's from Nazareth, which is podunk nowhere. Mary would be the who's who of who in the world is that? She's from Nazareth. That's like honeypath. I mean, nobody knows where that is. Is anybody from, if you're from Honeypath, raise your hand. One, always one. <laughs> I did that in the 830 and somebody got mad at me, sorry. But come on, it's nowhere. All right. It's like Honeypath. And God comes to Mary and says, Mary, you're pregnant. And you're going to give birth to God. Mary was a teenager. Uh, teenage girls in the rooms, uh, do you feel up for the task of raising God in your current situation? 
You know what she says to God? God, I, I mean, I'm, I'm 15. I've got some things going on in life. I've got high school finals coming up. I'm busy, God. No, he, she doesn't say that. You know what she says to God? You know what her response is? I am the Lord's servant. That I, I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't feel equipped for this. I don't know how I even got pregnant, but whatever you call me to, I'll do it. Faithfulness that leads to impact. Her faithfulness changed the course of humanity forever. You know, it seems that the criteria for being used in the economy of God is not ability, but it's availability. That people like Peter, people like Mary, and you can step outside of the Bible and talk about men like William Wilberforce and Martin Luther and Martin Luther King Jr. and all of these people who were just willing. That God called them and they said, I don't know how it's going to work, but you said go and I'm going. And they made an impact right where they were. We're called to this, guys. And, and this is, uh, here's the thing, here's the thing. Um, I'm not calling you to mission trips. That's not what we're talking about this morning. I'm not talking about hopping on a plane and flying to the Dominican Republic or doing grains of grace or doing Tuesday nights at the soup kitchen or whatever it may be. Those things are all wonderful, incredible things that we are called to. What we're talking about this morning is a lifestyle where there is no divide between the sacred and the secular. Where from the living room to the boardroom, from the gym to the grocery store, we are on mission. We are living a life that glorifies God. Can I level with you guys? There's some really easy things to do. There are 10,000 opportunities around us where you can plug in and you can serve. Let me give you a statistic, an easy way. I'm going to give you a statistic and then kind of draw it out. Um, it is no secret. I don't think anybody's going to gasp, gasp when I say this. It is no secret that youth are leaving the church by droves. In fact, Barna and USA Today recently released a study that said of Christian youth, those are youth who go to youth group, they go to church on Sundays, they grow up in the church, 70 to 75% of them graduate high school and never come back to the church. 70 to 75%. Kara Powell, the head of research at the Fuller Institute over in California, did a little study. And for those 25 to 30% who stay, she asked them, what, what is it? What kept you? Why are you still here? Because statistically, you should be gone. You know what the answer was? The number one answer, she gave 10, but the number one answer, it was not great youth programs. It was not laser lights and smoke machines and Xboxes. It was not good sermons. It was not great fall retreats. You know what the number one thing that kept people from leaving the church was? Intergenerational relationships. That an older believer, man or woman, would take the time to walk with students as they went through increasingly complex issues. Uh, somebody who's been there before and can empathize with them took the time to walk beside them and make an impact in their lives. You can do that, church. It is easy to have a relationship with a youth. All you have to do is sit there quietly, they will do the rest of the talking. It's easy. 
God can use you. God can use you in youth ministry and children's ministry and choir. There's all sorts of ways that you can make an impact here at First Pres. because let me level with you. We need you to buy into this. We need you to get this. Let's look at verse 27. Whatever happens, so Paul is saying whether I get out of jail or not, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospels. You see, we as pastors and people who work at the church, we're the professionals, you know, quote unquote. We have our playbooks and we know what we're supposed to do. We cannot affect change in this church unless you're on board with it. First Presbyterian Church cannot be everything that God is calling us to be unless you're a part of it. Why? Acts 17, 26. God put you here for a reason. We need you guys for us to have the full potential of things that God wants for this about how we're going to impact Greenville. We need you on board because you have skills and talents that I don't have. Listen, my main talent is that I can ramble for a long time. That's it. This is my wheelhouse. If they fire me, I am out of luck. I don't know how to do anything else. I can't build things with my hands, but you have skills and talents that I don't have, and God can use you to impact people in those areas. And he wants to. It's availability, not ability. So here's my question, because I don't think any of us are saying, no, I don't want to do that. I don't think any of us are saying that. What's our biggest obstacle to living a life of impact? In 1964, there was a young lady named Catherine Genovese living in Queens, New York. She was 28 years old. And at 3 a.m. one morning, I have no idea what she was doing out at 3 a.m., especially in Queens, New York. Um, She was murdered, which is like a slow Tuesday in Queens, New York. Um, She was murdered. But the interesting thing about this case, there were 37 to 38 witnesses Not a single one of them did anything. 37 to 38 people either heard it or witnessed it with their own eyes. No phone calls to the police. Nobody interjected. Nobody yelled and said, hey, stop doing that. Nobody did anything. This is an idea called the bystander effect. And you know, as humans, the more people that are around, the more we have a proclivity to suffer from the diffusion of responsibility. These 40 people who saw this just kind of thought, man, that is no good. But I don't want to get my hands dirty. Somebody else will do it. I mean, my cell phone, like I'm at my data limit. I can't call 911. I've got a meeting I have to be at at 3.15 a.m. I just, I don't have time. I'm busy. And I'm not equipped for that. I'm, I'm not big bodybuilder size. I can't step in and help. Somebody else will do it. And if we could just be honest, I think our church suffers from the bystander effect. We see needs, we see things that need to happen, and we say, there's 3,500 of us here, or however many are on the rolls now. 
somebody else will do it. Surely there's somebody more equipped. Surely there's somebody who has more time or capital or or the ability or natural giftings or passion to do that. I'm just going to keep doing my own thing and keep my head low. Or when we get as pastors a lot is, don't we pay you to do that? Isn't that your job? Yeah, the bystander effect, the diffusion of responsibility. Somebody else will do it. You know how you break this cycle? You do something. You see a need and you take responsibility. Guys, in this passage, the Apostle Paul is writing from prison. And he doesn't say, hey, don't worry, I trust that God is going to raise up the right young pastor to come in and help you out and shepherd you, and I'm just going to check out. No, he says, I'm going to keep on living so that I can come and be with you, and I can shepherd you, and I can walk with you, and we can do this thing together. He takes responsibility. There are plenty of needs around here. There are plenty of things that need to be done. And we need you. You know, because of the nature of our job as pastors, we get to be in some tough rooms sometimes. Um, And we get to sit with people who are approaching the end of their lives. That's always uh, a privilege to sit with those people. And um, in my experience, and some of the other pastors, this might not be theirs, I don't know. uh, But in my experience, uh, without fail, these people will start recounting things from their lives. They'll start recounting times where people influenced them or they influenced people and impact was made and we hear story after story after story. We hear about legacies. People who lived life well. People who made a difference. You know what we don't hear a lot about? How much money they made in the stock market. What their GPA was in high school. How much they could bench press about that one time they got a hole in one on, you know, hole 17. We just don't hear those things. After I had my daughter, I started really thinking about how do, how do I want to live my life? If, if I passed away, what kind of legacy would I leave? And after these conversations, I realized my biggest fear as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, my biggest fear is not failure. At least I know I tried. My biggest fear is being successful at a bunch of things that in the end don't matter. My biggest fear is getting to the end of my life and thinking I wasted a lot of time on things that just don't matter. You see, God is inviting us into his story today. And we could be bystanders. We could resign to the fact that, oh, somebody else will do it or we could get involved. We could do something. We can make an impact, and we're being called to that this morning. Let's pray. Father, this morning, challenged, God, I'm, I'm challenged, because there's so many areas of life where I'm just not intentional. And, and, and Lord, as a church, I pray that you would shepherd us into that We know that by your grace and mercy you love us and that you're going to lead us into places where we can make an impact. And I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would move in us, open our eyes to simple, practical ways that missions start right now. For some of us, that might mean moving to Alaska. 
For some of us, that might mean picking up and selling all that we have and going to the Dominican Republic. But for the majority of us, it means being on mission at lunch and being on mission when we're with our buddies and being on mission when we're at the supermarket. Father, be with us. Help us to live a life of impact and availability. In Christ name I pray, Lord. Amen. Do you need prayer for something or someone in your life? First Presbyterian Church offers a prayer service each Tuesday evening at 7 o'clock. Our prayer ministers will quietly intercede for you or anyone you're representing who needs prayer.